Sentire Media. Hello you, you're listening to A History of Italy. Episode 133, Catching Up With Genova, again, 1310 to 1442. So, we've come back round again in our never-ending tour to the northwest of Italy the current-day region of Liguria, which, at the time we are talking about, was more or less the Maritime Republic of Genoa. I can already hear you say, but why can't we stick with the interesting bits, the Medici and the Sfarza and Venice and all that exciting stuff? Well, I can understand that this is like the part of the book when you get to the end of the chapter of one of your favourite characters and are really interested in what's going on, only to find that the next chapter is about somebody you are less interested in. But then maybe you become interested in that new chapter too. Give little Genoa a chance. After all, it's a really lovely city, and not often on typical tourist itineraries. Everybody's always going down to Florence, Rome and Amalfi Coast. It seems, for example, like this summer, all of the continental United States will be in those places. So, get away from the clouds and go to Genoa. It's where our older people like to go for some peace and quiet at the seaside. It's the Florida of Italy, if you will. So, here we go. We last left off Genoa in the early 1310s, after the hopes of many Italian cities had been dashed after the death of Holy Roman Emperor Henry VII. This kicked off in the whole Guelph and Ghibelline business in Genova, with the Doria and Spinola families on the Ghibelline side and the Fieschi and the Grimaldi on the Guelph side. A civil war ensued, with the Guelphs being kicked out, and once they had done that, the Ghibelline Doria and Spinola started to fight each other, of course. The Guelphs then managed to get back in, thanks to the help of Robert of Anjou, King of Naples, who became Signore, the Lord of Genoa, in 1318. And the Guelphs were now on top again. It was the external threat of the Aragonese that convinced the two sides to work together, and they did it in time to see off the threat in the 1330s. The period also saw a brief return to the system of the doppio capitanato, the double captains, the dual system of government. But this gave way in 1339 to the dogato perpetuo, the dogato being the rule of the doge, when a Venice-like doge or doge would rule the city, a system that would continue on and off. This period also saw a division of the spheres of influence in the West Mediterranean, with Sardinia, as we have seen, under Aragonese dominion, except for a little bit in the northwest, which was under the rule of the Genoese Doria family, and Corsica going to the Republic of Genoa. 
Going back to internal affairs, after the dominion of the Milanese Giovanni Visconti, his three nephews couldn't really hold on to the Republic, and in 1356, a rebellion put a certain Simon Boccanegra, Simon Blackmouth, in the driver's seat. He managed to increase Genoese penetration into Corsica. He made peace with the Aragonese and with Venice, to the point that Genova and Venice actually managed to get their act together and prepare an expedition against the Ottoman Turks. Bocanegra seemed to do a pretty good job, but in the end his authoritarian approach and recourse to frequent forced loans from important families saw his popularity decline. He was found dead in 1363 due to unknown causes. The peace with Venice did not survive the issue of Cyprus we spoke about in the Venice episodes in 1373. In short, the Genoese gained control over Famagosta on the island and kicked off the fourth war between the two republics. This was the war that initially saw Venice prevail, winning the important battle of Anzio, not the one of the Second World War, obviously, and reaching the point that, along with Milan, they even managed to threaten Genova itself over land by hiring the mercenary Compagnia della Stella, the Company of the Star, that is the second version of the company under Adore Manfredi in 1379. But they were defeated by the Genoese in the end. At this point, the Doge of Genoa, Niccolò Guarco, had the idea of taking the fight to Venice herself, an event we spoke about in episode 116, Venice in Mortal Peril. In short, Genoa managed to actually get into the lagoon and threaten Venice herself, provoking scenes of panic all over the city before a Venetian relief fleet under Carlo Zeno came and trapped the Genoese, who were utterly destroyed. Peace was reached in 1381 under the mediation of Amadeo VI of Savoy. This conflict definitively proved that neither Venice nor Genova could gain supremacy in the Mediterranean while they fought each other. It's a bit like Harry Potter and Voldemort, you know, none can live by the other survive sort of thing. In the end, the only real winner were the Ottoman Turks. Meanwhile, Genova continued to look for external solutions for their internal factional fighting, and this time around, in 1396, they found it directly with the King of France. This was a novelty because, for the first time, a foreign ruler was called in directly, not a cousin or a brother, such as in other cases, the King of France himself. Obviously, he didn't come to take over in person, but he sent a representative. So it was that the 15th century for Genoa started under the administration of Jean Lemaigret, Sire of Boussicot. Now, he was obviously there to govern Genoa, but he was also out to follow his own agenda, something which included the fight against the expansion of the Ottomans. Indeed, already before taking power, he had helped lift the siege of Constantinople towards the end of the century, assisted by 1,500 Genoese crossbowmen, as well as a contingent of Venetians. 
One of the first things he had to deal with as the new governor of Genova was an attempt by the Cypriots to take Famagosta. Boussicourt managed to save the city, but believe it or not, that led inevitably once again to war with Venice. What a surprise! In general, Boussicourt's foreign policy didn't go down too well with the Genoese, but he did a decent job on the home front, managing to set out financial reforms that would earn him the praise of one Niccolò Machiavelli. It was thanks to Boussicourt that Florence managed to get their hands on Pisa in 1406. Indeed, after a rebellion in Pisa, it was the French governor of Genoa who took the city and then sold it off to the Florentines for a nice 200,000 florins. The governorship wouldn't last longer than that. Indeed, in 1409, after rebellion started up in the colonies, the city of Genoa soon joined, especially after risking invasion again from the Milanese venture captain Facino Cane, little-faced dog. Boussicourt managed to escape the rebellion and fled to Florence and eventually made his way back to France where he would end up being captured in a little battle that some of you may have heard of called Agincourt. The Genoese now called in Theodore II, Marquis of Monferrato, one of the neighbours in the area of Piedmont, as a new signore, but soon grew tired of him, and after three years decided that a new dodge was what they needed, and so they whipped up one of the Campo Fregaso family. It is under this dogato, the time as doge, that the Corsican issue came up again. The Genoese had placed a vassal ruler there, but the Corsicans were not happy and rebelled, asking the Aragonese king Alphonse to intervene, which he happily did, seeing the opportunity to extend his influence to Corsica after Sicily and Sardinia. To make a long story short, the Genoese managed to maintain control of the island, thanks also to a couple of naval escapades. One regarding an amazing feat of breath-holding and a sneaky underwater attack. It seems that a certain Genoese called Andrea Margone could hold his breath underwater for an amazing amount of time. The small Genoese fleet he was a part of had cornered an Aragonese one that was being held in position by underwater moorings and anchors to each other. Margone managed to go underwater and cut all of the ropes that held the ships together, sending them floating off in every direction and making them easier prey for the Genoese ships. Another event saw the Genoese managing to break through an Aragonese blockade using an incendiary ship filled with tar and phosphorus which sent the enemy into a panic. Fun, fun times. This whole business went down just in time for Genoa to fall under the dominion of Milan again, as we saw in the recent episodes on the Duchy of Filippo Maria Visconti. He became Signore of Genoa in 1421. The Duke used his new hold over the Republic to further his own interests, appointing his own men in key offices and magistratures. 
When war broke out between Milan and Venice, the most serene republic took advantage of the situation to attack Genoese colonies. The Duke of Milan, however, would not completely ignore Genoese public opinion. So when it seemed that the Adorno, Spinola and Campofregaso families could get together and unite to rebel against the Milanese governor, Obizzino d'Alzate, he was substituted with a more lenient governor. One thing the Milanese and Genoese did see eye to eye on was their position on the succession to the throne of Naples, siding with the French Anjou against Alphonse of Aragon, whom the Genoese in particular hated. You will remember from our Milan episodes again that the Genoese and Milanese pulled off a spectacular naval victory at Ponza, managing to capture King Alphonse himself. But then Genoa felt terribly betrayed when the Duke of Milan not only freed Alphonse after reaching an agreement with him, but also forced them to give back their booty. That was the last straw, or as we would say in Italian, l'ultima goccia, the last drop. Genoa rebelled, and that was the end of the Visconti rule over the Republic. Naples would finally fall to Alphonse on the 2nd of June, 1442. On an interesting side note, he brought a lot of Spanish nobles and clergymen with him to set up his new rule. Among these was a certain Alonso Borja, whose Spanish name was Italianized into, can you guess? Borja. Genoa would finally make peace with Alphonse in 1444. So we'll leave Genova there for now. Soon, they would start to look away from the Mediterranean, away from the constant clash with Venice and the expanding Turks, to new interests, to the Atlantic, starting with Portugal and all the way up to England, searching for other, less complicated, more lucrative trade routes. This vision would be shared and taken to its extreme by a son of Genoa, who was to be born shortly after the time we are talking about. He was the son of a certain Susanna Fontana Rossa and her husband Domenico, a wool merchant and prominent member of the Campo Fregaso faction. Indeed, in 1451, Domenico Colombo, whose surname in its anglicized form becomes Columbus, would have a son, and he would name him Cristoforo, Christopher. Grazie, grazie. Thank you very much for listening. Thanks in particular to my lovely Patreon supporters, starting with the second part of the Margarita Hack and Galileo Galilei level, Juan Diego, Julia G, Mary T, Old John in Milwaukee, Orlando D, Kevin, Mark P, Marxist-Leninist Sicilian, Mela, Michus Porchus, Mike M, Neville, Niels, Paradise, Patrizia Kappa, Roberta D, Rod L, Rodney N, Rudy F, Scott L, Sean M, Shelby, Stephen, Tap Dance Down Under, and TO5, and of course, 
Not forgetting the tippy-top Maria Montessori and Dante Alighieri level, Paolo, Lisa K, Andrew M, Brandon S, David A, Peter W, Kevin O, David L, Renat, David C, Oak, JW, and Sen. I would also really like to welcome new members Russell F., and Jeff S., who joins my lovely trio of Jeffs and Jeffreys. You can never have too many Jeffs and Jeffreys. And thank you very much for Gunnar for, for increasing his pledge level. I haven't thanked you for your ratings and reviews for a while, so I'd like to thank the one and only Daniel Larson for their review. You can look them up for your podcasting needs. Thanks to Anthony D, who says, always really well researched and put together. Don't think I've ever heard someone sound so British and yet switch to flawless Italian so fluently. I must say I did cheat. I can't take any real merit. It's not talent. It's just practice, since from the age of two, I had two grandmothers who couldn't communicate with each other, which is probably better considering the two characters of said grandmothers. Particularly the Italian nonna. Thanks also very much to Taigo Shia for his or her review. And they also point out once again how much they like the intro music. I also love the intro music. Makes me feel like I'm sitting in the southern sunny coast and excites me to be able to go there after COVID. Now, I know a lot of people are going to be coming to Italy this summer. So if you are, I would also invite you to take one of my audio tours with the Voice Map app. And they are Naples, Trento, Ravenna, Rimini, and recently Bologna. And thanks also to my recent guest, Jackson of History with Jackson, for his review, and my good friend over at the History of the Germans podcast, Dirk. And I recommend you go and have a listen. That is another great podcast. Once again, thanks very much to everyone for listening. And until next time... Arrivederci. Sentire media. Hey, podcast producers and show hosts. Do you want to join a podcast network that celebrates all things Italian? At Sentiri Media, we understand the allure of Italy and its unique culture. Our devoted team of hosts and producers are all driven by their shared passion for Italy. And we work tirelessly to create the best lifestyle podcasts and content that will whisk you away to the very heart of Italy. With us, you can savor the mouth-watering flavors, get lost in the stories from the past, break down the cultural barriers, and truly immerse yourself in the vibrant traditions of this intoxicating country. If you have a great podcast idea or are already in production and would like to join Sentire Media, head over to sentiremedia.com, that's S-E-N-T-I-R-E media.com, and find out how to submit your show.